When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's just get started. Uh, good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. You never cease to make me just go completely blank when you answer the phone. <laughs> well, I have a couple of more things to do than uh, uh, than my great engineer does, so I always try to get here a little bit early just so uh, I uh, <laughs> I don't get surprises that uh, that microphone doesn't go on at two minutes after eight and I'm not ready for it. But yeah, if I'm here, I answer the phone and Cream takes over as soon as he gets in. But it's always good to hear your voice. Oh, well, thank you, Bob. Uh, my question is, when I was little, my grandparents lived in Mason County, so in the Mason-Fredericksburg-Lano area, they would always try. I don't think they had any of these trees on their property that I remember. Okay. And they weren't very frequent, but they try to get it, and they called them wild plums. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is that the escarpment cherry or no. the Mexican plum? That's the Mexican plum. The escarpment cherry is a much bigger tree than the... Uh, uh, Mexican plum is, and there are actually two forms uh, of the Mexican plum um, that I, I see on my own properties, and the there is a taller form which produces a pretty substantial quantity of fruit. These trees will grow maybe 20 feet tall, and uh, they're about 90% seed and about 10% flesh, so uh, the more of them get eaten by the possums and raccoons and things than by people. And then there is a bushy form that rarely gets above 5 or 6 feet, and I rarely find any fruit on it. Now, both of them have the beautiful fragrant white flowers. Both of them, you can usually tell if there's one of those trees in the area in the spring just from the buzzing of the bees. It's one of the first things to bloom and uh, just be hundreds of honeybees on them. But uh, that is definitely the wild plum, Mexican plum, whatever you want to call it. Uh, pretty white flowers. And uh, like I say, the, the tree form of it produces usually a pretty good quantity of fruit. And um, anybody is willing to work around the fact that it's mostly seed, it uh I've had very good wine made from that, and, of course, plenty of jelly and things like that, but you have to work a lot harder than you do with some of the uh, improved plum varieties. Yes, I'm very much aware of that, that it was mostly seed, mm-hmm. but it was it's something that I even remember from childhood. It was absolutely, it was so tart, but it made such a wonderful jelly. Oh, yeah. That I loved it just completely, and so I thought, I want to see. I know those things aren't easy to come by, I guess, either. In the well, no, we usually keep them in stock at the nursery. I think most good nurseries do, because... Uh, they're just one of those good native plants out there. I'm not going to tell you they're super long-lived, but no. uh, they, you know, probably, I would say average lifespan is probably 20, 25 years, but that, uh, that's plenty of time to get lots of fruit off of them. Well, it is, and I, that, I was just going to simply make it a project. I simply want one of those, and I didn't know what I wanted. But <laughs> yeah, they are definitely available, and... Uh, you know, I can only speak for Shades of Green, but I manage Fanix has them too, and I wouldn't be surprised if Rainbow Gardens does. They, they're one of those things that at least the uh, growers around this area uh, have recognized as uh, being 
popular enough that they are worth growing. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy to say you shouldn't have too much trouble finding one. Well, I will be calling Shades of Green to see when and if they, you know, get them in. So that, that, that's wonderful news. I'm glad to hear that. Well, very good. And the other question is, when I was there the last time, I bought a coral berry and a Greg's Mist flower. Mm-hmm. But I'm not terribly sure where I should uh, try to look to, to plant them. Both of them are probably going to be happiest uh, with sun maybe up until 2 o'clock and then a little bit of shade from that blistering afternoon sun. Both of them will grow in full sun. But I think uh, if you have a spot around your home where they'll get sun, say, up until 2 o'clock, then a little bit of protection after that. Both of them should do very well for you. The coral berry is just a pretty plant with little flowers and little brightly colored berries. Uh, the Greg's Mist flower, of course, is almost a weed and yeah. very, very attractive butterflies. Uh, the coral berry will pretty much take care of itself as far as reasonable growth habit. Uh, the Greg's Mist flower, you will cut it back two or three times every growing season just to uh, keep it a little bit more in check and making a little bit prettier plant rather than just kind of flopping all over the place, which is how it grows natively. Well, my problem is always how to give it enough sun yeah. rather than, so I'm looking for things. I have a lot of filtered sun, yeah. and that's probably what they'll get. How tall does the coral berry get? Oh, gosh, not very big. I want oh, to say two feet. Oh, good. It's about good. as big as I've ever seen. About the same for Greg's Mist, 18 inches to two feet. I thought that was probably the case for the mist flower. I know it's kind of a sprawly thing, so I have areas to do it, but I, yeah. my question, I guess, was, or concern, was that I wouldn't be able to give it enough sun, and I still may not be able to. Well, I have a lot of filter, and I can, I can do that kind of thing, and that was kind of where I was wanted to plant it. So. Yeah, plant them both just in the brightest spots you have. Both of them will do well for you in filtered light. With a little more sun, they might bloom a little more profusely, but uh, um, I think they will, you know, they'll, they'll do just fine for you as long as it is truly bright and filtered. If it's bright enough to, you know, grow the other good natives like Turk's Cap and Beautyberry and some of the other things I think you have, uh, the uh, Symphiocarpus, the coral berries should do just fine. And the, and the Greg's Mist is not real pretty. Just, no, it uh, was the butterfly attraction. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to test. This is probably an unfair question. It's my last one. <laughs> because, But you have so many little nuggets tucked into that noggin of yours <laughs> <laughs> that I'm going to see if this rings any bells for you. There is a house down the street that has a bougainvillea, and I know it is a bougainvillea, okay. but it, it, to me it's just different than any of the others because the the majority of the ones I see are kind of sprawly, viney, and they'll bloom from the leaf tips and things. This thing has three stems. It's planted in one of those uh, uh, brick mailbox planter mm-hmm. things, so, you know, in that little area. It has six, three stems. They grow straight up, yep. and at the top is the bloom, and that's the only place it blooms. It blooms a huge bloom, a cone of a uh, what I would call bright, bright, bright pink. Some might say red, but mm-hmm. it has a pink in it. It's that electric pink, and it looks like, to me, when, the best thing I could describe the way that it's 
growth habit is, it looks like one of those big standard Phanix flocks with the mm-hmm. big heads on them, yep. just straight up and a big head on the top. Do you have any clue what that might be? It is a bougainvillea. They're just these days, there are so many varieties of bougainvilleas. Some of them, and I don't think this is the one you have, uh, there's a variety out there called Torch that virtually every one of the growths is very upright. Uh, what we see most often um, happens with almost any bougainvillea, periodically, instead of putting the more lateral growth out, it will shoot up two or three very tall ones. We call them water sprouts. And your your bushy bougainvillea is down there two or three feet tall, and then it's got this water sprout that's eight or ten feet up above the plants. Normally, those straight-up ones don't bloom as well, so I usually advise people to cut them back and tell the plant to put its energy into its usual bushy, sprawly form. But having said that, there are a handful of them, torch being the most commonly grown one, that has a more upright growth habit. So it is very definitely a bougainvillea, but uh, it's just... You know, 20 years ago, we probably had four or five varieties of bougainvilleas to choose from. Uh, Nowadays, with all the hybridization and all, we probably have 25 varieties to choose from. So it's making it harder and harder to generalize about them. But, uh, yes, you are looking at a bougainvillea, whether it is a normally, you know, unusually upright one or whether these are just some water sprouts. I'm not aware of one of the really upright torch types, it is a lighter pink. They're all that rich, rosy, red-purple color. So I'm suspecting that this is just some water sprouts this one's putting up, but it definitely is a bougainvillea. And, uh, you know, in nature, uh, I've never been to South Africa. I understand that they are enormous down there, but a few years ago I went to Jamaica and saw them with trunks eight inches across and plants that are 25, 30 feet tall. even see some of that in California and some of it in the Rio Grande Valley. So in nature, they want to become trees. We just kind of prune them to force them to stay more bush-like because it fits our gardening style better. Well, the thing that's been so amazing to me, and I've watched this thing, is it, it, I don't. it's not a water sprout because okay. all four are exactly the same height. Okay. They have been growing slowly. They have taken it all summer to get just past the top of what the mailbox is. Well, then it's, it's just one of the newer varieties that I haven't come across yet. You will notice, if you study bougainvilleas, that the bloom shape varies very widely on bougainvilleas as well. Some of them are little bit more open. Some of the blooms are a little bit more tight in uh, their flower structure, and uh, the arrangement can be very different on the stems. Uh, you're just looking at somebody got a very unusual, maybe they brought it from another part of the country or something. I've just not seen that particular one at any of our growers yet. Well, it's too bad because this thing is just, uh, and, and the blooms have been there for six weeks. They just And it, it just keeps getting slightly taller, this big cone of bright pink Well, flowers. I'm going to see one of our bougainvilleas this afternoon over, our bougainvillea growers over in yeah. uh, Seguin this afternoon. So I'll make a special no, is, effort to look for it. It's a deep pink. It's a very deep pink. It, it's a dark. It's not light. It's, yep. it's a very, uh, almost a red, one of those well, intense pink. That okay, probably is this, probably this variety called thing. Torch. <laughs> yeah, probably the variety called Torch, Joyce. And I'll look around and see if we can find them. Thank you, Bob, and hugs to all the little kids. Oh, thank you so much. Maxwell's very glad to be home. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. All right. Good morning, baby. Good morning, Bob. When I spoke with you yesterday, I forgot to ask the most important question. Well, I'm glad you got back through this morning, Manny. <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, when we are ready to buy Texas sage, the white cloud, yes, uh-huh. right. not in the smallest container, but the next size up, how do I take care of them? And how long can I keep them in the containers before they have to go into the ground? Well, I, you know, think about them sitting on a nursery yard. They, they could stay in containers for a year if they needed to. But mm-hmm. um, it's just incumbent upon you to watch the watering very carefully. Um, in the ground, you can let them seem to get pretty dry because they spread out the roots over such mm-hmm. a large area. But in mm-hmm. a pot, you can never allow them to dry out completely. So your watering schedule is going to depend on the weather. It's going to be something between every day and every three days. So you need to watch your watering carefully. I would feed them about once a month with a good liquid organic type fertilizer, whether mm-hmm. it's has to grow or one of the mm-hmm. Espoma products or uh, Fox Farms or several good ones out there. And um, you can keep them in those pots as long as you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this means if you, even if you go out of a town for a weekend, you probably need to get somebody to check them. They're just so much easier to maintain in the ground. So the ground. I wouldn't buy them too far ahead of the time that you need to plant them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you'll find white cloud probably about the biggest we ever see are in three gallon or five gallon containers Mm -hmm. um but uh they're a nice plant and they grow relatively rapidly so you're going to start out with a plant that's a couple of feet tall but it'll be four to five feet within a year or two so it's not they're not slow growing but they're not not super fast either Mm -hmm. and then one more question about the texas sage i got my idea from a shrub that's a few houses down an Mm -hmm. hour block but I noticed the color is kind of getting beige-like looking. Uh, it's not the silver. Does that mean they didn't water it enough? Probably, or? probably so. You're talking mm-hmm. about foliage color, not uh, flower color. Foliage, yeah. yeah. And will they recover again? They will. Uh, unfortunately, once the leaves, whether they are damaged by lack of nutrition or by lack of water, those mm-hmm. leaves that are on the plant now probably are not going to really change much. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. the uh, Texas sage starts putting on its new burst of spring foliage, uh, it should be back to its utif- usual, you know, beautiful gray color. You know, the common name is ceniza, which is uh, Spanish for ashes. And that's mm-hmm. the natural color of the leaves. It's just that gray ash color. So anything else, it is something abnormal. Sometimes it's lack of proper nutrients. Sometimes it's lack of water. In this mm-hmm. case, I think it's lack of water. Okay. Well, Bob, as always, thank you so much. And I get up on Saturday mornings (laughs) at 5.30 just to listen to you. Oh, Minnie, you're way too kind. You have a wonderful weekend, and I'll look forward to our next visit. And you too. Thank you so much. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, let's get right on back to these phone lines. It's going to be Elizabeth, Faye, Lon, and Kay. Nice little ring there to it. Good morning, Elizabeth. Yes, sir. Good morning. Good morning. I have a friend in East Texas, well, east of Houston, who has a tree she's calling a banana tree because it has sweet-smelling flowers on it, but mm-hmm. it's not a banana. It's I actually it's called banana shrub. Okay. But and it's if you about look at six feet tall. If you look it up, the botanical name is Michelia, M-I-C-H. E-L-I-A, I believe. Unfortunately, it doesn't do well in San Antonio. 
Um, if you want to try growing one, you're going to need to add a lot of compost to the soil. A uh, fairly sunny place to grow, but it's kind of like growing camellias, azaleas, things like that. You can mm-hmm. do it here, but this is not a yopon holly or a pittosporum or something that you just plant out there and forget about. And even with good care, your banana shrub is probably not going to be as beautiful here as it you know is over there east of houston and uh hopefully it's not drowning right now i can't believe the amounts of rain they've gotten over there i hope your friends were doing well i'm from beaumont but i lived in liberty for about 25 (laughs) years and i did i have azaleas and camellias but she uh put on facebook that she had a web around the trunk Mm -hmm. and she was asking uh what it was so i told her that it was probably bark life you are so incredible that's exactly what it is and it's nothing to worry about well that's what i told her i'm a master <laughs> gardener <laughs> but she has uh she said a hole in the trunk i said well how old is this tree and she's thinking about 50 years old wow mm-hmm. uh and but she doesn't want to lose it but i don't think you should worry about no uh, am i right about you're, that hole in the you're, tree? you're totally right now a shrub a banana shrub that's 50 years old is an old plant i would mm-hmm. uh depending on the growth habit of it i would think about either taking some cuttings to start some younger plants because you know that the plant has a 50 year old root system and it's getting mm-hmm. its own form of plant senility but the new growth out on the tips of the branches um, you know, that's, that's this year's growth and you can perpetuate, I don't want to get in some of the theories about, uh, telomeric reduction in genes and things, but you can, no, <laughs> you can, you can reproduce a plant like that for many, many generations. That'd be like, as we get older to be able to take one of our fingers and grow a whole new person from it. We can't do that, at least mm-hmm. not yet, but, um, we can certainly, uh, start some new plants uh, because 50 years old, the plant's not going to live forever. The other thing that can be done with uh, banana shrub, as with many other woody shrubs, and this is how, you know, for many years the nurserymen propagated things. If it is indeed bushy, if it has limbs that are low to the ground, you can take and sort of peel the bark just off the bottom mm-hmm. side of one of those low branches. Uh, bend a bend a you know metal co- clothes hanger or something into a U, pin that branch to the ground, put a couple of shovelfuls of dirt over it, and give it about six months. It probably will take root, and then you simply clip it away from the mother plant, dig it up, and plant it wherever you would like, or leave it in place just to have mm-hmm. something to grow up as this old plant ages. So, long answer to a short question: I would not be concerned about a hole in the trunk probably a borer or something that is you know not doing major damage but 50 year old banana shrub is an is a senile plant so to speak mm-hmm. and uh, it's not going to live forever but that hole in the trunk is not going to speed its demise in any way she said a frog has taken that pass in <laughs> that is so much okay. fun you know my <laughs> business partner's been texting me pictures she has a a colony of frogs that have moved into one of the planters on her front porch and you just don't have to look very far in nature to find something to make you smile. Uh-huh. Well, I thank you very much. My pleasure. It's good to hear from you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank, thank Certainly. you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Now from somebody else over not quite that far east. Good morning, Faye. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. 
we we fared out uh, very well here. We're about 20 miles south of Houston, right. and right in here we were. I don't know. We got six to eight inches and very, very workable and very grateful. <laughs> I, I love it when somebody can say we didn't get too much rain. We only had six to eight inches. What I wouldn't <laughs> give for a six inch rain right now in the hill country. Well, I'm glad sure you were. I would like to send you some. Well, I'm glad you weren't impacted uh, the way your friends yeah. east of Houston were. Well, we, we were very, very fortunate. And this place, right where we are, for some reason, we seem to, we seem to so far, uh, 16 years here, so uh, we're doing all right. So, Sounds great. Uh, I have a few questions. Uh, first of all, uh, what are the first greens we or, or uh, vegetables we might get started by seed here? For um, seed you can right do, now? yeah, you can do certainly do chard. Uh, you can do kale. I think you're probably okay to do most lettuces now. In fact, about the only leafy green I will tell you not to plant yet is leaf spinach. Uh, I think you can plant mustard. You can plant uh, oh collards. Just just about any of the leafy greens other than leaf spinach. I think you'll do fine with. Great. Well, I'll I'll get busy on that and uh, don't want to miss uh, early as early as possible. Right. I have some because of all the moisture and so forth. Some bulbs that uh, uh, are pretty long-lived and, and still doing well, but uh, what about getting them out of the soil where they are awfully wet and uh, drying them out? And if I, if I do that, if it makes sense to do that, do I keep them out till spring or uh, a 101 on that? Be, be a little more specific about what kind of bulbs. Are these rain lilies or these crinums or these uh, daffodils and things like that? Uh, no, they're more elephant ear type. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh. alocaceus and colocaceus. You know, there's no reason to dig them unless you want to divide them or move them. Um, there's no reason not to, but um, when you dig them, of course, you're going to have to dry them off. The top, if there's any green left, is going to uh, shrivel and go completely. The roots are going to shrivel and go completely. So, you are shocking the plants in a way. Now, if there's concern that they're just going to rot in the ground, uh, then it would be, you know, probably a good idea. But I have to tell you, I have seen a number of the different um, alocasias and those things actually grown as aquatic plants, grown with their roots constantly submerged in a lily pond. So I certainly don't think it's mandatory but if there's uh, any reason that you want to dig them, you certainly can. But uh, I don't know that I would leave them out and dry until spring. I would probably just replant them immediately because where you are, you rarely get a severe winter. And alocaceas and colocaceas both are things that, you know, do their best to grow year round. So uh, fine to dig and move if you like, but I see no reason to force them into a dormant state at this point. Oh, okay, good. These are in containers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, I might just take some drier soil and move it over. That would be the only thing. That would be fine, or perhaps especially the crinums. They make such a, you know, reproduce so rapidly that you periodically need to get them into a bigger pot. But that's strictly up to you. It doesn't hurt them to be root-bound. It just means you're going to have to work a little harder to keep them properly watered. So, yeah, do do whatever you want, but uh, they certainly don't require a dry rest period uh, like many of our other bulbs do. Well, good. Thank you for that info. And the other thing I had to 
uh, ryegrass, what kind of temperature do we look at for uh, planting the rye ryegrass seeds? You know, I think you are fine to plant it any time. Most of your ryes will actually tolerate hot weather if they get adequate moisture. Um, so typically, I would say mid-October, but if you want to go ahead and uh, plant a, plant your seed now, uh, by the time it really gets up and starts getting bushy, it's probably going to cool down at least a little bit. So if you want to hold off till mid-October, that's fine. But if you say, you know, my life's going to get so busy, it's do it now or not at all, I'd say do it now. Oh, okay, very good. And how much shade can that take? The perennial rise will take uh, a great deal of shade. The annual rise, uh, they they will grow in the shade, but they get kind of leggy, not nearly as pretty. So try to give it a half a day of sun if you can. Uh, if not, look for one of the perennial ryegrasses, and you may get a blend or you may buy them separately. But uh, my experience with the perennial rye, it grows taller. It has to be mowed where it doesn't usually need it in the sun. Uh, but it's extremely shade tolerant. Is it something you need to get at a, a, a like a Douglas King, or or should I uh, just? Look at the bag wherever they have them at the feed store, and it'll say. Well, I Douglas King, of course, is a wonderful source. They usually have that intermediate perennial rye called Greyhound. But um, the only thing you really want to avoid is the what they call Oregon ryegrass, uh, and that's what so often the feed stores have because it makes a tall, hard to cut, waterlogged grass that, in my opinion, just isn't real pretty. But they have developed a number of shorter-growing annual rye now, which, uh, in fact, that's probably going to be the principal ryegrass we keep this winter month, these winter months. But um, uh, just avoid Oregon rye. And if you're dealing with a feed store that knows something about what they're selling them, tell them you want one of the low to intermediate varieties, and it's your choice. Even though we call them perennial, they're not really perennial here. They're going to die out when it gets drier in the summer. So uh, it's your choice whether you're going to use annual or perennial, but just be sure you get one of the more compact varieties because you don't want to be out there mowing twice a week and bogging your mower down and all. I just uh, I do not like the annual ryegrasses, but there's some new turf-type ryegrasses, annuals, that are really beautiful. Well, that's really good information. I sure thank you, Bob, and uh, uh, that's my short list. Well, you, you have a wonderful Sunday, and send us some of that surplus rain. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> thank you, Faye. We'll talk Bye again. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening. Lon, Kay, Jeanette, and Lee in that order. Good morning, Lon. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Got a little more sleep last night than I did the night before, thanks to American Airlines. So I'm doing well this morning. <laughs> good deal, good deal. Well, I wasn't going to be, I didn't want to be on the radio. I was just going to leave a message, but your phone screen is so quick with the hold button. I thought, well, I guess I'm going to be on the radio. <laughs> well, you don't sound like you're terribly concerned. Some folks are just awfully shy and give me give me untrue names and things like that because they don't want anybody to recognize them but uh how can i help you this morning or what did you have to tell me about i I don't have a question but i just wanted to comment about the uh, individual asking about the conical shaped bougainvilleas right i'm a grower between victoria and golia oh excellent bougainvilleas and other things 
But what she's probably talking about is pixie pink. And if you aren't familiar with that one, um, it's real short and it's very upright and almost architectural looking and real conical on the end. But it stays smaller and you can even keep them in a 10 gallon, I mean, a 10 inch pot. Okay. And as it, uh, it blooms pretty prolifically, but as it, if it gets a little leggy, you just cut it back and it starts over. And it's just easy to keep small. Pixie uh, pink. Very pixie good. Pink. And it's, it's real small and the thorns are tiny, so it's, I wouldn't call it thornless, but it, they're just very small. And, and it's, another variety is Vera, but it gets yeah. quite a bit bigger. Right. Vera, and, Vera, uh, of course, is that rich color, and I'm very fond of They call it uh, Vera purple, I think, but it's really that very rich red. But uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's quite conical, and, and it's got that, but it just gets so big, it's kind of hard to deal with. Right. But, well, back to Pixie Pink, pink for maybe just... Maybe what she's looking for, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, Pixie Pink, is it day neutral? Is it one that gives us good flowers through the summer as well as spring and fall? Yes. Oh, it it is hard to beat. It is really hard to beat. And once it gets a little, because it's very upright, once it gets a little leggy for your, if you keep it in a pot, yeah, sure. I just cut them, and then they just start over again. They're they're really hard to beat as far as container-grown <laughs> bougainvilleas for a patio. Well, I, I wish you came to San Antonio. I would love, we would love yeah, to do some business with to. you. I but... need to. Uh, the Valera Cristatus, the uh, Philippine violets that you always talk about, right. and, and nobody's growing it for you. Uh, we do uh, we do those, but if you're not familiar with coral creeper, it's another Valera. I like it better because it blooms nonstop and it's a coral color that'll cascade in a pot. Um, okay. If you do uh, find somebody to grow this for you, holler at me. I'll get you some specimens because wow. I like it better than the violet one. Very good. Well, I tell you, why don't you do this? Uh, uh, let me put you back on hold. If you wouldn't mind giving your contact information to sure. uh, my screener, I would uh, love to love to have a good source on that. And you're so kind to call, Lon. I really, really do appreciate it. No problem. Have a great day. Well, you do the same, and my engineer, Kareem, will talk to you in just a second here. I'll put that one on hold, and uh, I'll talk to Kay. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Uh, I just have one question about a tree, and I know that you uh, recommend a cedar elm. Mm-hmm. I have some native elms of a, one in my yard and some coming up um, in the extended area kind of behind the barn. Right. They have, uh, at the root flare, they have this huge apron. Uh-huh. Is this a cedar elm or is this something else? It is, well, it's undoubtedly an elm, mm-hmm. and I have seen cedar elms do that. I usually talk about cedar elm just because it's such a good tree for San Antonio and the hill country, but there's so many other elms. There's Drake's elm, which is similar. Um, the American elm I'm not crazy about in San Antonio, but they're beautiful ones, and my grandfather's uh, old house where he lived in Dallas. So, yes, I suspect you're probably looking at a cedar elm, which has had the benefit of growing properly, having that root flare exposed, and uh, is not uncommon for the root flare, you know, to be twice as wide as the trunk of the tree. So, um, I, I can't say absolutely, but I think it's probably cedar elm. If not, I think it's probably Drake's elm. Both okay, of them good they trees. They just come up on their own. I didn't plant them or anything. <laughs> they make a lot of seed. I'll bet you the two cedar elms in my front yard collectively make 20,000 seeds a year. Uh, they're not as invasive as hackberries are, but they are 
very, very prolific in their seed production. But, no, I think you've got a good tree. And, uh, as you know, I like to see diversity in canopies. I don't like to see a whole bunch of the same tree species in one place. But uh, you've got a great tree. Well, I noticed um, it likes to drop big limbs. I don't know if it's because of the drought. We've not gotten hardly any rain. Right. If it's that, but um, I was just wondering, it. I don't. I don't like to see that when they just drop these big limbs. Well, what you're you're very observant. Uh, cedar, well, all elms seem to be a little bit prone to this syndrome. I guess is the best way to call it. Nobody really knows exactly what causes it, but it's called summer limb drop syndrome. And you can have enormous limbs, three, four, five inches in diameter, just for no apparent reason, just come tumbling down out of the top of a tree. It doesn't have to be windy, doesn't have to be stormy. And I, again, I, you know, I'm am blessed to be able to visit with some of the best arborists I know. And I think the, uh, you know, a lot of them are just scratching their heads trying to still trying to say why is this happening but it always seems to be in a period of drought and uh, which is why they call it summer limb drop syndrome but uh, Mm -hmm. other trees even pecans the live oaks aren't as prone to it but pecans and elms and uh, most of your deciduous trees seem to just do it periodically so uh, don't pitch your tent underneath that tree and don't put your picnic (laughs) table underneath that tree but it's it's not an abnormal occurrence but it's one that I still have not found a real good scientific explanation for. Okay. All right. I was just wondering, I thought since they just were native like that, maybe that was a different kind that was more of a trash tree or something. I, you know, I had an old horticultural <laughs> teacher in college, and he told me a, a weed is merely a plant in the wrong place. And uh, I modify that to say a weed's a plant you don't like or want. So, uh, uh, some people might consider them a trash tree. I certainly don't. They're long live. Okay. They're pretty much problem free and uh, very drought tolerant. So they're and, and again, I'll refer back to some of my mentors over the years. Uh, I had an old friend that told me there's no such thing as a good tree or a bad tree. They all have some good characteristics and some mm-hmm. bad characteristics. And in the case of the cedar elm, I think the good greatly outweigh the bad features like the limb drop syndrome. So uh, I certainly would uh, take good care of it and enjoy it. About how long is the average lifespan? I'd say 60 to 80 years. With okay. good care, it might be longer than that. Uh, I'm thinking of some trees um, here in San Antonio. We have a great restaurant my friend Cappy Lawton owns called Cappy's, and there's a row of cedar elms behind that that must be, oh, probably 60, 70 years old, and they are vigorous beautiful upright trees so they are a very definitely a long life tree okay thank you so much for your information it is Appreciate always it. a pleasure Kate. thank you for the call this morning all right back to gardening and back to the phone lines going to be jeanette and lee couple of lines open grab one if you like you know the number i say good morning jeanette good morning good morning good morning we did get a little smidgen of a rain yesterday. I thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, if you want it to rain, you got to wash your car, turn on your sprinklers. And leave your windows <laughs> open. <laughs> exactly. I have a couple of questions. Um, uh, I have some river fern, and it looks so sad. I want to move it, but I don't I don't know what time of the year to move it. Um, but it's just 
you know, baking out there, you know, in that sun, you know, yep. it's just too hot for it. You can just move it anytime you like. It is a very hardy plant. You know, it grows from an underground rhizome. You want to be sure it doesn't dry out completely. If you have a place you can dig it and replant it, do it this afternoon. Uh, if it's going to be any length of time, uh, you can dig it, put it in pots, you know, and just keep it in shady area, keep it well watered. Uh, that has to be one of the toughest plants out there, but you're so right in observing that it would really not like to have that hot afternoon sun. So morning sun is fine, bright shade is fine, but uh, you go ahead and move it whenever you want to. Okay, loquats. What's a good time of the year to trim those? Uh, they're so beautiful out there. I, I just, you know, they're le- using a lot of leaves right now, but uh, I need to trim them up a little bit from the bottom, you know, because to where you can get them more into it, you know. Sure, do that anytime. Um, you know, the loquats tend to bloom in the fall and then produce uh, fruit through the winter months. So if you are anxious to have the fruit, uh, you can wait until they start blooming and then take out the limbs that have the fewest flowers. But uh, most people are not real crazy about making jelly or eating the fruit. So I'm going to tell you to trim them anytime you like. But do put some mulch around, do water them a little bit more deeply, a little bit more thoroughly, because that's why they're dropping leaves right now. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, um, you know, there's some stuff. I don't know if, you know, if you've heard about it. It's called uh, Color Essentials. Oh. <laughs> I'm and, magic, and fairly familiar with that. Fair, I call it Magic Fairy Dust. <laughs> I love it. I, that's one of the best things y'all ever did, I think. I just, it's so, so good, so good. I can't say enough about it. I well, tell everybody about it. I certainly appreciate that, and uh, you have a wonderful afternoon. And you too, and I'm glad you're back. Well, thank you, Jeanette. That's, uh, but I'm awfully, awfully jealous. 35 degree weather, dead gum. Well, I said I think it's 78 out there this morning. That's warmer than I saw the entire time I was in Wyoming. So that's how I get through a hot summer, telling myself I can go to Wyoming in September. And uh, um, you fish or hunt or what oh, you I do? fish, I fish. I got tired of hunting a few years ago, but. Uh, I caught and is rook the fish tr- better to eat up there than down here? You know, when I'm up there by myself, it's catch and release. When uh, Roberta oh, and Wendy can okay. go with me, we're way back in the woods eating uh, trout every night. But uh, this mm-hmm. this time it was just catch and release, so uh, they, they got off lucky, so to speak, this time around. But, uh, yeah, I caught brook trout and brown trout and uh, uh, possibly even some... Uh, uh, of the cutthroats, which is a native trout up there. But it's just a beautiful part of the world. And uh, where I go in the Wind Rivers are very few people and very few bears. So it uh, meets all my standards. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you're able to go up there. And, you know, everybody needs that. You know, we need to get back to nature, period, dot dash. It's, uh, in many ways. You are so right about that. It's definitely good for the soul. So you have a uh, great weekend, and I'll look forward to our next visit. And yes, and you too. And thank you very much for your info. Always a pleasure, Jeanette. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Okay, bye. Um, yeah, she's talking about color essentials. That's our version of Rose Glow. When we find a product we absolutely love, we go to the people that make it and say, how would you make it better? So uh, back when Gary DeMasters actually owned uh, Maestro Grow, we went to Gary because we liked the Rose Glow so much. And I still recommend that as good fertilizer, but uh we asked him how he could make it better, and he added a few things to it, and that's what we call rose or call the uh, color essentials. So 
if you're not familiar with what Jeanette was speaking of. You know, a lot of you are kind enough to listen to me on both Saturday and Sunday, but there are also a lot of folks that listen on Sundays only uh, due to schedule or whatever. So sometimes I, uh, you know, we'll talk about an event or something uh, both days. And in this case, I want to take a minute here and talk with my friend Diane about a really fun event that's coming up in October. Good morning, Diane. Good morning, Bob, and I thank you very much for for letting me share this with your listeners. Well, it's to their benefit as well as, well, it's not really for yours, except for the just the good uh, pleasure you get out of it. This is an opportunity for people to learn how to live better and avoid a lot of pitfalls that modern agriculture presents us. Exactly. So the event is a screening of a documentary, Secret Ingredients. It's uh, created by Jeffrey Smith, the founder of the Institute for Responsible Technology. This movie will not be showing at theaters. Um, so this <laughs> I wish it would. <laughs> I wish it would, too. This, yeah. It's a great opportunity, and I'm, I'm co-hosting with Elizabeth Johnson, the owner and chef at Farm Table, who uh, practices Ayurvedic cooking and cooks with organic, locally grown ingredients. So we'll have this movie that talks about what happens when you eat a conventional diet, and what happens when you switch over to organic, clean, whole foods with regard to diseases and symptoms and infertility and things like that. Um, the event takes place on October 11th from 6 to 9 at Farm Table, which is located over there on Auditorium Circle, right, right adjacent to the Tobin. The dinner will be, <coughs> excuse me, the dinner will be Farm Table's award-winning kitchery with seasonal vegetables and garnishes. There'll be an aqua fresca and tea bar, and dessert will be served family style. And so you come in, you eat, then you get to watch the movie. Then after that, we're going to have um, a panel of experts that will do roundtable and Q&A. That'll consist of myself, Elizabeth Johnson, uh, Dr. Suzanne Gazda. She's a functional medicine neurologist in San Antonio. And then we're working on another guest who will be maybe a little bit of a surprise. So um, so anyway, it's going to be amazing. And they get to learn some really good information for only $25. Yep. The catch is there's only 100 seats. Right. But for the price of a good meal, you get all this. And, and I would add, and, you know, correct me if I misspeak, but I, all the, the crud uh, to use the word that I'm allowed to use on radio, that is in our modern diet, uh, is it's so damaging to our kids. It's so damaging to pregnant women. And even uh, to my listeners, even if you're not that concerned about your own health, uh, do it for your kids. Do it for your grandkids and uh, and share the message with them because uh, all these things, especially some of the neurotoxins and things, uh, is my understanding, are are significantly more damaging to developing brains and goodness knows we need all the smarts we can get in today's world and and bob you are absolutely right that is a great point so the children's cells are are you know they're growing and multiplying at such a speed and when they're bombarded with all the toxins the roundup the just the process of genetic engineering all that's going on their bodies aren't none of our bodies are but theirs in particular are really harmed you know they've seen childhood um food allergies increased by 50 percent yeah and serious things like crohn's not to mention adhd adhd and autism and 
all sorts of different, uh, both digestive and neurological disorders. Yeah, so the movie's great because it's going to show people how they can reverse some of these symptoms yeah. by something as simple as a lifestyle change. <laughs> it sounds like a great evening, Diane, and you get you get so much more all for the, you know, for the price of a good dinner. You're going to get a good film, and you're going to get to talk to some of the true experts in the world about all these sorts of things. So how are people going to... Uh, how are people going to get tickets? How are people going to get more information if they would like? So you can go to Farm Table's Facebook page. Uh, spell that out for us. P-H-A-R-M-T-A-B-L-E. Or you can go to their website. To get the tickets, you can go to the website, farmtable.com, and then just go to their events section. If you want to learn a little bit more, a little blurb of the the you know description of the movie, Mm-hmm. You can look at their Facebook page, or you can look at secretingredientsmovie.com and watch a trailer. Very good. Now, and Farm Table is open for lunch, if people, isn't it? If people just want to go have a good lunch, would they be able to get tickets actually at the restaurant? I, I don't know if they're selling tickets at the restaurant, but they can definitely guide them to how to get them. But, yeah, they're actually open on weekends now. So Outstanding. You can go there to for lunch any day of the week and get a little taste of what good stuff you'll have (laughs) at the event on October 11th. As you and I have done a time or two. So uh, thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your busy Sunday morning, and we'll talk again. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Diane. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, some of y'all may have actually heard Diane speak at some of our seminars uh, over at Shades of Green, and uh, she's just a lady who is probably the most knowledgeable in this part of the country on a lot of the problems with pesticides and things. This sounds like just a really wonderful event. But uh, let's uh, get back to your questions now. Lee's going to be up first, and then it's going to be Steve and Barbara. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, Dr. Bob. Good morning, sir. Beautiful day out there. Uh, listen, every day is a beautiful day. This is uh, just one of them that has at least a slight chance of rain in there, so maybe it's just a little better than some of the others. Uh, some people been getting it, some haven't. I haven't got too much, but some, you know, three miles away get four issues. Uh, welcome to the welcome to South Texas. Coming. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. How can I help this morning? Cedar Elm. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got one in the yard, volunteered years ago, and uh, I've got some little seeds from it growing. Right. They're 16, 18 inches tall in uh, coffee can containers. Mm-hmm. When do I plant them? Uh, yesterday. <laughs> you, okay. can, you can do it any time, Lee. It's uh, when you're growing in a container, which is, in my opinion, the best way to do it. Um, you know, you're not damaging the roots when you tap them out, put them in the ground. If they're 16 in- inches tall... Uh, they're good, healthy young trees, and they are ready to get out of those pots and into the ground. Uh, when you pop them out of the pots, do take a look and be sure that you don't find any girdling or circling roots. If you do, just take a sheetrock knife or something and just slice down the side of the root ball. But um, as long as you can water them, you can plant those trees today. Uh, if you wish to not have to water so often, you can wait until they've dropped their leaves this fall and gone into their winter semi-dormant state uh, is also a good time to plant them. But um, it's just really up to you. It's whenever it's convenient for Lee, it'll be a good time to get them in the ground. Okay. You know, no, I don't want to wait to fall. The deer are starting to come in the yard. I yeah. want to get them planted and put my two-by-four wire cages around them and uh, 
take them down and forget yeah. them. Well, don't forget them. Get out there and water with some regularity. Well, but you know, I water, but I forget <laughs> about having to protect them. There you the go. Field. Sounds like a okay, great plan to I, me. When I plant them, uh, I've been I've been feeding them uh, Super Thrive. Uh-huh. So they're just, uh, you know, you can hear them grow. <laughs> yeah, well, Super Thrive really isn't a fertilizer. Super Thrive is a great supplement. But uh, give them a little has to grow, give them a little growing green, give them a little uh, nature's creation, uh, lands, uh, uh, premium landscape, or, you know, one of the Meister Grower Fox Farm products. Give them a little true fertilizer. I think of Super Thrive as being like the vitamins, but it's not the main meal. So uh, give them a little bit to eat as well. Yeah, they, I started them in, uh, in uh, that, uh, uh, I buy everything that you say. I've got <laughs> gallons of, uh, you know, liquid seaweed yeah. and blah, 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 everything. That, what do I put in a hole at the bottom? Of the, I'm just only going to dig it as deep as the tree is, yep. as deep as the pot. I'd, I'd put I put a, in the bottom? I'd put a handful of growing green in the bottom. I've got bags of that. Yeah, just a good handful underneath the trees and... Uh, uh, water them good when you put them in, and uh, they'll take off and probably grow twice as fast in the ground as they do in the pots, Lee. So uh, um, you have a good afternoon planting. Maybe maybe you'll plant them and then get a good rain on top of that, and that'll be the best of all worlds. I'll plant them at 12.01. <laughs> You're a good man. Have a great Sunday, and uh, let me move on and talk to Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Good, good. So my question is, uh, we have some raw land up in Bernie area. Congratulations. And it off. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And quite a few Texas persimmon trees underneath the oak trees we've been trimming out. Uh-huh. Um, question is, is we've already cut them down to the ground once. Mm-hmm. They've already started to come back. Is there anything I can put on them to keep them from coming back? Not really. I was kind of worried about putting things really major on it because yeah. they're all underneath oak trees, yeah. right? And you don't want to you don't want to screw up your oak trees. So, uh, if no. you really want to stop them, um, find yourself uh, you know some old shingles, find yourself some old tar paper or something like that, and simply cut them down if you can to ground level, and then simply you know smother them out with something they're not going to come through. Uh, as dry as it's been, you know, you could have used cardboard and it wouldn't have even broken down. But uh, if you if you really want to stop them, uh, you pretty much have to use a physical barrier rather than a chemical barrier. Now, you know how I hate the what they call the weed block fabric because of just what it does to the soil underneath it. But you could actually take some of that, maybe cut it in 18-inch squares. And everywhere you cut down one of those uh, persimmons, you know, just put that weed block down and weight it in place with some mulch or you know, so I'm, sure, I'm sure you have plenty of rock if you're in the Bernie area. But in effect, uh, yeah. we just need to smother them physically because it's not practical to do it chemically. Could I do it with like a garbage bag? I don't know if it's going to be long-lasting enough. If you truly, because okay. uh, these things are going to try to sprout for the next 18 months. And um, if you've got one of those heavy-duty contractors garbage bags, you could probably do that. But the stuff you get at the grocery store is going to not hold up long enough to do the job. Okay. Uh, another question is, I uh, have a, you know, more than one cedar realm uh, growing <laughs> out there. Yes. And 
a couple of them are already starting to lose their leaves pretty significantly. Yeah. Should I be worried about that? Uh, look, at, look at your ring gauge, and you'll know why they're yeah, doing it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what I figured. A lot of things, uh, you know, I was looking yesterday afternoon around my own ranch when I got home, and there's stuff out there, native stuff, that is just, you know, burning, shriveling leaves. I'm sure things will be back out fine next spring, but... Uh, um, you're just looking at the effect of having gone for about three and a half months now without any significant rainfall. So I'm not concerned about the trees, but um, I'm sure ready for the next rain. Yeah, that's kind of what I figure. Well, that's all I had, Bob. Uh, have a fantastic morning, and thanks for the advice. Always a pleasure, Steve. Thank you, sir, and uh, enjoy your Hill Country property. All right, one line open. Grab it if you like. 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Barbara, Raul, and Cindy in that order. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Hey, I have two questions for you. Okay. I have um, some Jerusalem sage. I've got three uh, bushes of them. They've done Mm -hmm. well for, gosh, seven or eight years. They Uh bloom beautiful yellow. Um, This last year, they've they've just gotten uh, the trunks have gotten huge probably about three inches in diameter and they are falling over they're, they're up against the fence line uh-huh. should i tie them up to the fence line cut them back um i had or yank them out i don't know what i should do with them you know they just get sprawly when they get uh large like that i would tend to cut them back but i wouldn't do it at this time of year because they're already have formed even though they're hidden down inside of the little stems where you can't see them but they're already forming their buds for next spring's beautiful yellow flowers so i would i would let them bloom in the spring i would cut them back immediately afterwards i would do it selectively like all plants we don't ever want to take off too high a percentage of the leaves at any one time but i probably need to do the same thing to mine i mean they're over the retaining walls or out into the area Right, they just get yeah. monstrous, these, and it doesn't are, hurt them, you know. Yeah, they're about four feet in diameter each now, and you know, so they're <laughs> kind of falling over instead of standing up. And but I, I bet they kind of tie them up to the fence or something. You can if you want to, but you know, they're just so spectacular when they're in bloom. I'd let them bloom next spring and then uh, give them a fairly okay. fairly severe haircut, and cut them back before they bloom. No, the after they bloom. Oh, after, after they bloom. yeah, you. Uh, you know, if you cut them back before, you're cutting off all the buds and cheating yourself out oh. of the flowers. And uh, that's okay. why I suggest waiting. They're going to be in bloom probably in March, early April. And just as soon as those flowers fade, before they really start putting on their spring growth, that's the time you want to get out there with the pruning shears. Okay. All right. Thanks. And I have one other question. Yes, ma'am. Um, I, I always did well with Swiss chard, and it'll go for two, three years. You know, right. I'm, I'm in the Bulverde area, but it finally died. So... I have a bunch of um, little seedlings and little tiny pots that I have am growing of Swiss chard, and they're mm-hmm. about a little tiny puny three or four inch um, height now. Now, right. can I plant those this you, fall still? Or you are you are seeing true leaves on them. You're beyond the little cotyledon, the seedling stage, right? Yes, barely. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, you can plant them this afternoon if you like. Uh, the only thing is, when they are small like that, they are subject to damage by things like pill bugs, and even the blasted rodents like little mice and things will sometimes get in and nibble on them. But uh, the sooner you, you, if you can, this as long as you can plant them without physically damaging them, uh, get them in the ground right. as soon as it's convenient. I think Swiss chard's one right. of the first things that can go into the ground, and uh, 
Are you growing the bright lights? You growing ruby chard? What kind of uh, Swiss chard are you growing? Ruby chard. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it looks like rhubarb, and it's as close as you're going to get to I something know. that looks like rhubarb. But you know, we can't grow rhubarb here. But maybe you can fool no. some of your friends and just call it Texas rhubarb or something like that. That's right. That's right. Can't make a rhubarb pie out of this stuff. No, nah, I wouldn't recommend right. it. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll get them in the ground today. Sounds good. We'll uh, look forward to our next visit. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for your help. Bye-bye. You're welcome, Barbara. Bye. All right. Do remember, uh, next uh, Saturday is our first free seminar of the fall, and it is all about vegetable gardening, and I guarantee you, Swiss chard's one of the things I'm going to be talking about. Uh, Raul's up next. Good morning, sir. Yes, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Yes, uh I'm still working on uh, getting my grass up, and I, was, I had two questions. I was wondering, when when do I put the pre-emergent? Um, what are you trying to prevent? Uh, I have a few different weeds. I have uh, crabgrass, oxalis, mm-hmm. and um, I think uh, I think there's a carrot a carrot weed. I think it's called. Okay, not sure. Yeah. Um, problem is, um, the way a pre-emergent works, it doesn't kill seed. It keeps the seed, if the weather's right, it keeps the seed from developing a root system, and then it, uh, then the little seedling dies. Uh, so that's how a pre-emergent works. Now, in the case of your oxalis, or oxalis, some people pronounce it each way, it's actually growing from a bulb rather than a seed, and your pre-emergents aren't going to do anything at all about it. Um, if you put out your pre-emergent now and the seed doesn't sprout for two or three months, pre-emergent's not going to work because it will have all gone away over that period of time. But like I say, we don't we don't know when the seed's going to try to sprout. I I hate to say it, I just don't think pre-emergents work very well. If you want to use something like the corn gluten meal, which is a natural pre-emergent, uh, you get the benefit of in effect a fertilizer because corn gluten meal is a fertilizer, but I have never really been successful at heading off spring weeds with pre-emergence. You'd have to put them out four or five times, which gets very expensive. Uh, the one thing that I think is a very good idea that is a natural pre-emergent is to put down some good manure compost. It's still okay. a little hot for that. As soon as we get consistently into weather that's not above 85 degrees, you put on about a half an inch of good organic compost, and you will do much better than you will buying something that says pre-emergent. And then here's what we do in the middle of the winter. Your grass is probably going to turn brown, or we're probably going to have a good heavy frost or two. And once that grass turns brown, the only thing that's going to be left are these green weeds. And you can go out and spray the vinegar-orange oil mix, which will almost instantly kill all those green weeds without hurting your grass at all once it goes dormant. So I I don't waste my money on pre-emergence. I, you know, will put the compost on in the fall. I'll spray with the vinegar-orange oil mix uh, midwinter if I have green things coming up. And that's the time the dandelions and the winter grasses really try to come out. But uh, since mostly what I have is Bermuda, it's going to be totally dormant. So it's going to be totally unfazed by putting out that vinegar-orange oil mix. But the little green weeds will be dead in 10 minutes. Okay, I think you answered my second question. I was going to ask you, is there a good way to kill crabgrass? Mm -hmm. I think you're saying put 
the yeah. orange oil on it? Yeah, uh, orange oil vinegar mix. The vinegar is actually the active ingredient. The orange oil just makes it work better. We use uh, two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of strong vinegar. But uh, uh, that's, you know, usually that starts coming up with our winter rains in January, February. And, yeah, you just go out and spray it well. You don't, you're not soaking the ground. So a gallon of mix goes a long way and it'll kill that crabgrass literally in a matter of minutes without harming your good grass. But uh, you're going to be amazed when you put on that uh, compost, uh, even your crabgrass, you're going to probably destroy 19 out of 20 seeds. You're going to have very little of it come up to have to deal with. Okay. That sounds great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I appreciate the call, Rodel. Thank you, sir. Bye. Okay. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Oh, I love that little George Gaetan guitar there. We're going to talk to Cindy John, Cindy number two, and then Tana. If you just heard a click on your phone, I'm talking to you, Cindy. Good morning. Good morning. Good, Good morning. morning. So I'm hoping you don't need your radio glasses to, um, to answer <laughs> this. <laughs> well, hold it up real close to the radio just in case. Okay. So it's a little clump of green blade um, that only gets about two, two and a half inches. I've been calling it cedar sedge. Okay. And I don't have to mow it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's a good ground cover. I started with one, and now I have a couple little patches of it in my yard. Do you like it? I love it. Then it's a good ground cover. Uh, cedar sedge is one of the few things it will tolerate sun, but it will also so tolerate some shade. When I walk around my own ranch where, you know, I, <laughs> I eliminate a lot of the cedar, but some of my limb up and, you know, let them be uh, more of a tree type of thing. And the cedar sedge is one of the few things that will grow on the ground underneath it. So I am very fond of cedar sedge. It's, it's a little course it's not fun to walk on barefoot like some of the native grasses are but it's uh uh it's a survivor it needs very little care from you it remains green and all except the driest situation so yeah i'm a big fan of cedar sedge is it something that that is sold um yes it is sometimes you have to look around for it Sometimes we are able to get it. We're just now really getting some of our growers to accept the fact. And, you know, it's not whether it's a good plant or a bad plant from a grower's view. It's how much of it can we sell. Can we sell enough of it to make it worthwhile growing it? And so there are, um, you know, some of the growers doing it now. I wish they were doing it in four-inch pots. Uh, We many times can't get anything smaller than a gallon container. So, um let yours grow, let it go to seed, let it self-propagate as much as possible. But uh, um, if you want to get it started in some other areas, yes, it can be found at some of the nurseries. Mm-hmm. I uh, have some thick oak trees that don't mm-hmm. let much light in. Right. And I just have not been able to get St. Augustine to go. Yeah, yeah the cedar, cedar sedge will be a little thinner uh, it's not going to be as dense, but that's just his way of growing, and it'll grow in pretty deep shade. So, uh, uh, and again, that's that's where I see most of it on my ranch is under the oaks where I've removed the cedars. But uh, like I say, it's one of the few ground covers that seems to do well. And of course, the deer 
are not an issue with it, and um, it, it just has a lot of good qualities. Mm-hmm. It stays short. I don't have yeah. to mow it. <laughs> it it just uh, you know your lady after my own heart it's it's not the prettiest neatest ground cover but that's not what the hill country is about these people that want a beautiful yard in uh hill country need to go back to california or new york or wherever they came from because we just don't have the water to support huge lawns but we certainly have enough to support cedar sedge probably have to keep the uh leaves off of it well, you don't want the yeah. leaves so thick that it smothers it. You know, leaves, uh, a thin layer of leaves is a natural mulch. It's what's built the soil for the past 100,000 years or so. But, uh, no, you're absolutely right. You don't want to just, you don't want to cut off its light supply, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay, then another question here is um, a shrub or a, a something taller than the fence, the six-foot fence, mm-hmm. that stays evergreen but might have some berries for the birds. Not berries for the birds, but you sound like mountain laurel would be a, uh, you know, a really good mm-hmm. plant. Um, there is also a shrub called southern wax myrtle. As long as it gets plenty of sunlight, it's going to stay evergreen. They're, they're a little hard to get started, but once they're up and growing, they are, uh, you know, they're, they're very good plants. And southern wax myrtle does provide berries that the birds would like. Um, Yopon holly, the standard forms, uh, may get up to 10 or 12 feet. You can prune them if you want them to be smaller. Uh, They form a berry that the birds ignore when it's green, but once they begin fermenting, uh, the mockingbirds, the cedar waxwings, everything just goes wild over them. And uh, Pride of Houston is my favorite where you're looking for just a real upright. If you're looking for a real architectural specimen that's just very, very unusual. Look for weeping Yopon holly. I mean, every one of these things is just a little piece of art, uh, but they produce a berry that the birds will love, and they are evergreen. Uh, if we were talking deciduous, I could give you a bunch of others, but those are the evergreens that come to mind for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I have a weeping holly that's planted where I don't see it. I didn't notice it had berries. Oh, yeah. If it's getting enough sunlight oh. to bloom... Uh, it will just cover itself with red berries, just okay. like your uh, regular yopons do. Okay. Okay, and then I wanted to uh, give a shout-out for elm, the cedar, cedar elm? Right. Yeah, the cedar elm with the little leaves. Yeah, almost like crassifolia if you want to be botanical, but that's why we call it cedar elm. <laughs> yeah, that's why I didn't get into yeah. college and body. I can't do those words. <laughs> oh, I've got a weird mind. I remember plant's name. Yeah. I have a terrible time with people's names, but I plant names somehow stick, so I guess I'm in the right business. So I appreciate the talent and the yeah that it takes, but boy, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cedar Elm will do fine for a descriptive name. But what I love about it is that it has the soft leaves, so they're not so hard to deal with as the oak leaves. Mm-hmm. And it loses the leaves, so you can put it on the side of the house, uh, the west side, and have protection from the sun. Mm-hmm in the summer and then in the winter when you want that sunshine and heat and warmth for your house 
the leaves are on the ground. That's absolutely true. Why, uh, if there's any negative, it does make a lot of seed, which seed. likes to come up, but they're not like the hackberries. You can pull them up and get rid of them if you want to. But yeah, cedar elm has very few negatives. Uh, the summer limb drop syndrome that was talking with the previous caller about really? is uh, one of the few, and that probably doesn't affect one out of a thousand trees. But you don't want to be sitting underneath it if yours does decide to drop a big limb. But uh, I'm with you. I love cedar elms does not have the um the the acorns that fall on the sidewalk that <laughs> sometimes people fall on and, right yep. <laughs> and those those leaves so i i really uh i really do like it uh, seems like the trunk goes up nice and straight and mm-hmm. tall for the most part kind of depends on what's growing around it but uh uh-huh. i i love them but again it's possible that we would get a disease someday that hits it like they did with uh, many of the dutch elms up in the north so i still want to see some variety in the canopy i don't want to have a yard that's all cedar elms any more than i want to have a yard that's all oak trees but uh i feel like it is uh and i'd put it as one of you know my top four or five trees for the hill country and one of the top two or three as far as being available. There are a lot of things I'd love to see, escarpment cherry and uh, even the madrones, which are almost impossible to find, but of the trees you're going to find at the nursery, it's certainly one of the top trees for this area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, quick question, which you may have already said today. I don't. The Brussels sprouts are uh-huh. going in in October? Uh, really, I think you can plant them now if you can no. find them, but, uh, okay. Brussels sprouts, of course, is the longest season plant. It takes, you know, three times as long to produce Brussels sprouts as it does to produce broccoli. And, uh, just as soon as we get away from this 90 degree heat, uh, it'll be time to get them in the ground. One of, one of several things I'll be talking about at our vegetable seminar this Saturday. Oh, okay. And then I want to say that one of the perks of having an organic yard is, is the insects. I, I had a big walking stick mm-hmm. not too long ago, and I had a praying mantis, and I didn't put it out. Uh-huh. Just one that visited in the lightning bugs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah no. Really Nature. I didn't have before I switched. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you saw the light, or in this case, <laughs> would say you saw the lightning bug, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought that was a thing of the past. So well, not when you do it organically and do it right. You have a wonderful Sunday. You it's do. always good to hear yeah, from you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right. Uh, John's up next. Good morning, John. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have a, I have a question about figs. I've got a, I mean, a giant brown turkey <laughs> big tree yes sir i mean it and i'm i've got a lot of neighbors that are asking for cutting so sure. i'm wondering how to do that well we're getting late in the year to do the easiest thing big cuttings unless you've got a mist table set up or hard to root but the best way to propagate figs in my opinion is what we call air layers you take a knife you skin a little bit of the bark off about a two inch long area just on one side of one of these out toward the end of the limbs and then you wrap a handful of moist sphagnum around it you wrap that up in either plastic wrap or aluminum foil and the tree the fig tree starts putting roots out into the sphagnum normally takes about six weeks and it always works best in the hot part of the year so um, summer's held on a long time you may get away with doing it this late But you let it root, and then you simply cut behind your little wrapper, uh, peel that 
plastic or, or foil off, and you've, in effect, got a pre-rooted cutting, which means you're going to have 100% success with it as, um, you know, as long as you've watered it and things like that. The other thing that you can do, since this is a very large plant, it probably has some limbs close to the ground, and it sometimes does this so without any help from you. But if you'll just skin a little bit or just rough up a little piece of, uh, of the bark on one of these limbs, make like a U-shape out of a piece of uh, heavy wire or a clothes hanger or something, pin that limb to the ground, put a couple shovelfuls of dirt over it. If you do that now, probably by you know March or April next spring, it will have put a bunch of roots down into the ground. Um, you just lift up and be sure that it's rooted, and if it is, you just take your pruning shears, snip it off, dig up that little limb that has rooted, and share that with your friends. Uh, that is called a layer, and uh, 50 years ago, that's how most uh, trees or most shrubs were reproduced. Um, so two choices on uh, on propagating your big fig tree, and uh, um, I wish we'd had this conversation back in June. I would have gotten you to put, you know, 50 air layers on there, and you'd have 50 plants to give your friends now. This late, try air layers on a few. Try your regular layers down on the ground. And by spring, you'll definitely have uh, some plants to share. Great. I'll give that a shot, and then uh, I'll keep June in mind for next year. Yes, sir. Just <laughs> it's, The air layers are, like I say, you're just 100% successful with it. But the weather needs to be warm. I wish I had a crystal ball to know when the weather's going to turn cooler. But if we get another mar- month of good warm weather, your air layers will do great this fall. You've really got nothing to lose. You're not going to hurt the tree. And at worst, uh, just they, they wouldn't form roots until next year. But uh, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd go ahead and do some air layers this afternoon, do some regular layers. I can almost promise you the regular layers will be successful but if you have a lot of friends asking for <laughs> for plants, uh, you're probably not going to be able to find that many limbs you can pull down close to the ground. But uh, uh, go for it. Either way, um, you know, you'll have lots of good, healthy plants to share with friends. Sounds good, Bob. Thanks. I appreciate the help. Always a pleasure. All right, back to gardening, and uh, let me hit the right button here. That would be Tana. I'm sorry, it's going to be Cindy first, and then it's going to be Tana. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning, Bob. Don't forget me now. <laughs> Not about to. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I've got a bougainvillea in a pot, and one branch has leaf curl on it. Okay. I cannot find any insects or anything. Is there an answer to why that branch is curling? It probably is some sort of, you know, invisible physical damage. Uh, whether it got nibbled on, whether it got just whipped around a little bit in the last windstorm, or it may be something internal in the plant that just kind of messed up the vascular uh, supply of materials to that limb. I certainly wouldn't worry about it. I don't think it's anything that's going to spread. I don't think it's uh, pathogenic in any way. Um, it's just kind of like who knows why on some of the bougainvilleas. It's like I'm sure you've seen them. Sometimes they make those big old water sprouts, and you just have to whack them off. In this case, if it's unattractive, 
prune it off. If it's uh, not a problem, just leave it there. It's uh, a little bit unsightly, but it's certainly not a problem to the plant. Yeah, I mean, at first glance, I look at it and I think, oh, it's droopy. It needs some water. Mm-hmm. But then I look and everything else is okay. Yeah. It has flowers on the end of it, so I'm just waiting until it finishes yeah. with the, the flowers, and then I'm going to cut it off. That's exactly what I do. Okay. Um, do you have any suggestions for how to protect seedlings from cats? I, uh. I was... I have some um, desert rose seeds that I was going to start, mm-hmm. and at first I thought, oh, I'm going to get an aquarium and stick it in there, <laughs> and then I thought, no, then it wouldn't get any air circulation. Right, right. Um, and you're concerned with um, them doing their business in the soil. You're not as worried about scratching or anything like that. When you say protect, what are we protecting yeah, against? Yeah, no, uh their little paws or their little mouths at them. No, I'm going to have, they're in a, like a six inch uh, pot that I'm going to be starting their sure. seedlings in. So they're not going in them. Well, you know, the um, liquid fence people actually make a dog and cat repellent that works fairly well. Lavender oil is repellent to kitty cats. You could do some cotton balls uh, and just, you know, a little essential oil of lavender on them. And most cats, that will slow them down. Uh, Of course, a physical barrier, just, you know, making a little round cage of uh, chicken wire or something like that around them that you can just lift off when you need to physically touch the plants or water them without making a mess. But uh, the only thing that's 100% guaranteed with kitty cats is a physical barrier. But um, some of the repellents uh, work pretty well. They keep them from chewing on them. But, you know, of course, those curious little paws and things, uh, that's what makes kittens fun, and that's what makes kittens a problem. <laughs> so Yeah. 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 Well, that's what I was trying to think of, you know, some kind of, you know, wire cage or something. The man know, in so I can... the man in your life, if you can persuade him to, could make you a little square box covered with chicken wire that you could just, you know, say two feet by two feet that you could set down over those pots and just uh, uh, be ten seconds worth of effort to lift it off to do anything physical you need to with them. But that's going to be the best thing you could do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had some of those little, um, oh, I don't know what, how you would know, because you're probably not in the kitchen a lot, but it's (laughs) one of those uh, wire things that you can buy that has create an extra shelf in your cabinet. Sure. And I've put those over my plants before, and they were okay, but I'm going to be growing more with uh, light. Well, I already know I'm going to get a text message from Terry telling me I'm making more work for him. But uh, sure. put him to work and a little bit of hardware cloth, a little bit of chicken wire. Um, I would just, I'd be creating. It doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to be complex. And uh, somebody with some carpentry skills can do what you need in about 15 minutes. So uh, um, be a be a good job for a retired guy. So uh, I, I already know I already know the text I'm going to get from him. But I, I that's what I would do. Okay. And what is you you say um, soft white light or daylight white? Daylight white. Light? Yeah, daylight white or cool white are the two best. 
Okay. And get those bulbs as close to your little plants. And as you well know, on desert roads, really warm, 80 degrees yeah. or above if possible. Yeah, I've got the heat mat. So. Yeah. Okay, I know you're coming up on a break here. 55 um, seconds. <laughs> Phalaenopsis, the bottom leaves are floppy. So do I cut them off? Do I water more? You probably should water more, but check the medium. Sometimes that's a sign that your potting medium has broken down to the point they need to be repotted. Okay, well, I just repotted them. Okay, now water water more and give them a little super tribe. Okay, all right. Okay, well, I'll save my next question for the next time. I'll look forward to it, Cindy. Thank you so much. Okay, okay, thanks. Bye. Right now, it's going to be Tana first, and then it is going to be Gene and uh, E.T. and Junior. But first of all, good morning, Tana. Hey, good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Okay, I've been out here some 20-plus years. Right. And other when other than when I first moved out here and had a, a lot of rock and all of that kind of thing, mm-hmm. I have not had problem with scorpions until this year. Okay. And I don't have rocks stacked up anywhere. I don't have rock clutter. Um, I do have a problem with them mm-hmm. uh, at night. Right. And, um, as I said, there's no clutter I can clean up. Do they eat pill bugs? They don't go after pill bugs. They will go after crickets. Uh, they will go after roaches. Uh, they actually will go after small animals and uh, geckos and things like that. Um, but they're, they're going more for the softer-bodied things, um, if you've ever watched one sit there and use those little front claws to just pick something apart and eat it, they're, they're interesting creatures, but, you know, and I leave them alone if they're outside, but if they're in an area I'm working, if they're in the house, I'm afraid I don't. Um, what you can do, um, you'll have to protect them from four-legged friends, but I use glue traps. If I start having a problem um, with scorpions, a good friend of mine's uh, son oh, built a it's new... it's not in the house. What's it's that? It's not in the house. Oh, not in the house. I don't have problems. No, it's as for the second time this year. Uh-huh. Dee uh, Dee has gone out in the yard at night, mm-hmm. and she has come back in, and she's been hit by a scorpion. Wow. Well, you can do the same sort of traps outside. I mean, uh, I don't really know where to tell you to put them. Um, and again, they're they're typically they're after things that are a little more seasonal, like crickets and things like that. And the scorpions are going to show up where they have something to eat, and uh, they're young or born live. You'll see sometimes you'll yeah. see a female with twenty or thirty little babies riding around on the back. Um, if there's a particular area um, where it stays relatively dry, diatomaceous earth is, uh, I mean, the scorpions can't, can't walk through it without uh, getting into their joints, which pretty much will end their life. But I don't, you know, they're arachnids. They're not bugs. Yeah. They're related to spiders, which makes them very hard to eliminate with any kind of spray. 
So um, I, I guess you could work at, uh, you know, I just, her inside at night. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, and that's just not always a real practical answer. But uh, scorpions are just, you know, in some ways they're beneficial yep. in that they do control things that want to eat on our plants. I don't know. I, I doubt that they will be attracted to light. You could always, uh, you know, put up something that would attract insects. But I'm just thinking that sometimes when I walk into my shop, which is in a room in my barn, I'll go in and flip on the lights and I'll see two or three of them go flying up the walls. So I think they are, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> what would we call it, negatively phototrophic or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it, it is an issue. I w- always keep some comfrey growing somewhere, and comfrey goes a long way toward relieving the itch and the pain. But, of course, just not getting hit in the first place would be the best idea. But um, you've already done all the logical things, you know, no wood piles, no rocks. But as long as you have, you know, something they want to eat, they will be around. Uh, you can put out beneficial nematodes. It will control a lot of the small things. Uh, insects that they would like to eat um wrong time of year uh but uh you know a little earlier in the summer putting out some of the nolo bait would have controlled more of the crickets and the soft-bodied grasshoppers ah. and things but uh um I, beyond that it, it, that's a real good question real tough question i wish i had a better answer for it okay well i think you have answered the food availability problem for the scorpions because there are a lot of uh, grasshoppers out here this Uh year yeah and uh normally i in fact i have two starts of comfrey Mm -hmm. i mean two two nice plants and they have both gone dormant yeah so i have no comfrey whatsoever and therefore, no comfort for the little dog last night. <laughs> well, next spring, when your comfrey is actively growing, harvest some leaves and freeze them. Um, you can do that without affecting, uh, apparently without affecting. I know Dr. Kirby sometimes takes the leaves and macerates them and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, incorporates it into lanolin. And, uh, you know, so it makes sort of a cream, uh, or I guess we'd call it an ointment rather than real cream. There are ways, uh, in fact, you can sometimes there are some products uh, you can even buy that have comfrey in them. But, of course, uh, being the tightwad that I am, I'd rather make my own and know where it came from and everything. But, uh, um, yeah, if uh, if you have a lot of little grasshoppers, that's probably one of the reasons you have scorpions. Yeah, and she had gone out into the, I have one patch of green, that mm-hmm. I water once a week, uh-huh. and I have very few scorpions. I mean, I have very few um, grasshoppers in there. Right. But further out, where everything is dying, mm-hmm. uh, there are more grasshoppers out there. Yeah. Well, put and out. That's where she went. You know, you're okay. a fan of you're a fan of the birds, so uh, put out some um, more feeders because birds eat a lot of grasshoppers, even the things we don't like, like the grackles and the starlings. Um, they're probably our best grasshopper control other than something like the no-low bait. And so uh, uh, more birds you bring into the landscape, the fewer grasshoppers you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Uh, I, you may not know this, but uh, could I have used some apple cider vinegar and just poured it onto her paw? 
would that have helped cut the sting? Actually, something like baking soda would more likely be a thing to baking use. Baking soda. Yeah, because yeah. so far as I know, a scorpion sting is formic acid, much like wasps and things are. Yeah. And uh, so you want to use a, a base product, and uh, uh, baking soda is probably going to, I would think, would give you more effect. Uh, There'd be nothing wrong with uh, putting a little bit of uh, apple cider vinegar on afterwards, but as far as mitigating the pain from this thing, I think baking soda would do more for you uh, than apple cider vinegar would. Okay, well, I thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Give her, a, give, give the little one a pet and, um, <laughs> you know, part of life in the country. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, the, one of the negatives, but they still outweigh all the all the other things as opposed to being in town. So anyway, let me know how you how you get on with it and uh, look forward to helping anyway we can. Tanya. It's always good to hear from you. Oh, would you like a suggestion on some good drought resistant tolerant kind of couple of plants? What have you found that you like? Uh, my flower bed is almost nothing. But the variegated abelia mm-hmm. is not only still growing nicely, but it is still blooming. And bringing hummingbirds and things in. I love the oh, se- yeah. several mm-hmm. of the new varieties of abelia are excellent yeah. shrubs. Yeah. yeah, as I said, the abelia has, has lasted. The blackfoot daisy mm-hmm. has stayed. And uh, only, but at least two of the Gerber daisies have. <laughs> yep. And um, the, okay, it's a Nandina, but it's smallish, and it has a big leaf. Okay. That kind of Nandina. Yeah, probably. Has, uh, has weathered it. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one of your little true dwarf, dwarf forms, either Harbor yeah. Dwarf mm-hmm. or Harbor Bell. And uh, all great Harbor suggestions. Dwarf. That was it. Yeah, Harbor okay. Dwarf. Okay, well, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, Tina. Thank you so much. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, next up is going to be Jean. Good morning, Jean. Good morning. Good morning. I heard you talk about that escarpment cherry uh-huh. a few times now, um, and I'm over by Victoria. It, would it grow in this area, or is that more for Oh, golly. It, um, it probably would not grow as well because it likes really, really good drainage. And uh, seems to do real well in our limestone soils. I suspect you could grow it, but I probably would start it out in a raised bed because uh, over in your area, you know, you can get a little bit more prolonged rains than we do. I don't really know. You've got a little more sodium in your soil, and I don't know if that would be a problem for it or not. It certainly wouldn't hurt to try. I doubt if it's going to be as successful as it is in the hill country, though. Okay, I may write it off. I have two mountain laurels. One's probably about five years old, and the other one's about three years old. Mm-hmm. And we were wet this spring. Right. Um, and they, I, I think that's what caused them to lose lots of leaves. Right. So I have some branches that are still green, not too many, and then the rest of them, you know, look kind of dead. Right. Anything to do to make help that recover? You know, I know Super Thrive probably, but... <laughs> that's that's the first thing I'd suggest because I don't know anything that helps a root system recover better. Um, you might try one of the mycorrhizal products, uh, some of your better fertilizers. Espoma makes a big deal about playing up the fact that they put mycorrhizae in virtually all of their fertilizers and... Uh, 
Um, it's actually listed on the bags. I will tell you that many other fertilizer companies probably shouldn't mention Medina by name, but there are other fertilizer companies that put the mycorrhizae in their fertilizer products, but uh, they haven't gone to the all the uh, paperwork and money that's involved in getting it on the label. But uh, mycorrhizal fungus would probably help uh, if you plant more mountain laurels. Of course, I always recommend a raised bed when you're a little bit wetter climate like that. But uh, Superthrive is going to be the main thing. As long as your stems are green, you're probably not going to have uh, long-term problems. When you get to the point that the stems start having big blackish spots on the stem in addition to dropping leaves, that's a very bad sign for mountain laurel. So hopefully your, yours aren't at that stage. Okay, and and what has died back, like those branches that don't have anything on them, do you cut them off? I'd wait till spring. Some of them will put on new leaves. Some of them will not. And sometimes it's real hard to visually tell. So easiest thing is just wait till that new growth starts in late February or March. Anything that's not putting on new growth, yeah, that gets the pruning shears. Okay, and then one more for shade. Um, I just either perennials or annuals or something that I can put out like this time of year that'll make it through the winter? Is there anything that, um, you know, um, a number of your salvias will tolerate to shave very well. Salvia coccinea, uh, salvia blepharophylla, the eyelash sage, the smooth leaf sage. Those will certainly make it through the winter. Shrimp plant, Justicia would be a a good choice for uh, the shade. I love American beautyberry which okay. is a pretty plant. Turk's cap, yeah. three different colors to choose from. Uh, Turk's cap, it would be an excellent plant to set out at this time of year. Um, it's going to freeze down in the winter, but if you find pigeonberry or the so-called, um, oh golly, what's the other one uh, with the uh, with the little berries? Uh, um, I'll think of it in a second, but but pigeonberry is a beautiful little plant. Always comes back for me in exactly the same spot, but uh, and it's terrible. The thing I'm trying to think of, the botanical name is Symphiocarpus orbicularis, but I can't say the common name right now, but I will in a second. But uh, um, those are all perennials that uh, that would make it through the winter. Um, the um, the Turks cap is probably going to stay evergreen. You know, the American beautyberry will drop all its leaves to uh, uh, expose uh, those beautiful purple or white berries. So uh, those are a few. Um, the so-called Mexican honeysuckle, which is closely related to shrimp plant, would do. Uh, I think you still have time to plant plumbago if you uh, like the. There's a dark blue, a light blue, and a white form of plumbago that are all good perennials for bright shade. So that'll at least get you started. Okay, I appreciate that. Pigeonberry, now that I've thought of it, pigeonberry is the other one that you might look at. It's kind of a low shrub, um, but it should do fine for you. You could also look at the uh, what's uh, called the dwarf Barbados cherry. It'll want to go in the brighter areas, but uh, it will do well in the shade. Pretty little pink flowers, pretty, pretty little berries on it as well. Okay, thank you for helping me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for calling this morning, Gene. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines, and uh, nothing's changed. E.T.'s first. Good morning, E.T. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm great, sir. How about yourself? 
Oh, I'm still kicking. Good. I got a question about I got a question about fertilizers. Uh-huh. Uh, last month or so, I had an opportunity to you know to attend uh, the, the Landscape and Nursery Expo. Right. And I got a bunch of you know little sample bags of fertilizer, and this one here I got two of them, and they say line of turf fertilizer. One's a seventeen zero four, and the other one's a a ten zero ten. Can I use them on potted plants or? Dilute them or what? I sure wouldn't do it. They'll kill anything in a pot you put them on. That's some of that uh, synthetic chemical crap that I don't like. Well, that uh, also is all organic, though. So. Nah, there's not a 17% organic fertilizer out there. Because they say protein on them and uh, something like that. So. Well, um, I, I am not aware of, a, of an organic fertilizer that is that high in nitrogen and if yeah. it's organic, it's going to have some phosphorus in there. That's the middle number. It's always nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium in that order. So um, I, I would be, um, I would be reluctant. I and I would always be very careful in pots because uh, a lot of things uh, that are for use in the ground have what we call a high salt index. And uh, that is just devastating, the plants growing in containers. Look for that little USDA seal. If you see the USDA certified organic seal on there, then uh, you'll know it is truly uh, free of a lot of the bad things. But anything that high, yeah, I'm still going to use it more on plants uh, in the ground than I am in containers. Okay, so I got some uh, some shrubs that can sprinkle maybe around the absolutely. shrubs or just throw it on the grass. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and uh, last week I heard myself talk on the radio about uh, that the deer ate my plants. You know, I mean, was <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was uh, cantaloupes or if they were uh, squash. Right, right. Well, I discovered now. You know, I got four little cantaloupes, but the sizes of a soft. I mean, the size of a tennis ball. Oh, uh, you lucky guy! The way the weather's going, you may just get some nice ripe cantaloupe here in another yeah. two or three weeks. Uh, yeah, it was a best of show because I was about ten thousand feet up in the air and mountain and uh, the Wyoming uh, chasing trout at last weekend. So I won't apologize. I need my break every now and then, but I appreciate you even listening to uh, the best of show, CT. Oh, well. When I was a kid, I used to go out in the back property. We used to have a little small creek back there, and we uh-huh. used to go for brook trout. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I, and we had bears, so I understand that, too. So. <laughs> well, I carry my bear spray, and thank goodness I've uh, never faced one in the wilderness, and I hope that holds out for the rest of my life. So, hey, you get out and have a great weekend. We'll talk again, and let me get uh, Junior in here now. Good morning, Junior. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm um, great, sir. How about you today? Awesome. Good. Uh, I have a question. Uh, what are your thoughts on agroforestry, and uh, how can I implement it in this uh, low brush uh, South Texas area? Um, I'm. You'll have to define agroforestry to me. That's not a term I know. Uh, kind of like uh, growing uh, vegetables in uh, with the uh, with the uh, wildlife here with the mosquitoes nearby, without cutting too much trees or mosquitoes, just a. Uh, Pretty much implying uh, into it. Well, um, uh, mesquite is not a problem. Mesquite trees produce uh, a compound which we call alleliopathic, which keeps mesquite seeds from germinating and growing. That's why if you have the big old mesquite trees, you don't have that nasty second growth, real thorny, brushy mesquite coming up. 
But to the best of my knowledge, it's not really allelopathic to most other things. And as long as you have enough sunlight uh, through those mesquites, and of course they drop their leaves in the winter and they're kind of a thin, open type of tree, um, I wouldn't see any problem at all with growing vegetables underneath them. Now, uh, if you're concerned, uh, you might want to create a raised bed, or I know a lot of people down in your part of the country uh, they get those big old molasses tubs, drill some holes in the bottom, uh, fill them with a good soil mix, and grow extremely good vegetables there. Uh, I see no problem at all with that, and, uh, you know, mesquite's certainly not going to create any shade problem for you during the winter months, so go for it. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I appreciate the call. You have a great weekend. Likewise, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Junior. Bye. All right, uh, yeah, let's take one more call here before uh, we go to uh, the next commercial break, and that would be Marcelino. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing today? Uh, it's just another beautiful uh, Sunday out there. I wish it was a little cooler, but that'll be coming along one of these days. Yes, it sure will. Uh, now, I, I was, the, stud, uh, the Internet on that citrus problem I was having that, you know, uh, thought yeah. we, we thought it was kind of birds and stuff that might have been pecking on them, but right. it, it, I don't know. Are you familiar with that citrus canker? I have uh, seen some of it. It's not common, but um, you, you could be seeing some of that. Uh, if it is that, I would spray it with hydrogen peroxide. Just get your old grocery store hydrogen peroxide, two parts water, one part peroxide, Spray it about every two weeks, and I think that will almost certainly take care of it. Okay, because it, it sure does look like, I've seen some pictures on the Internet, and it sure does look like that's what it is. And But, uh, yeah, it said something about sulfates or something like that, you know, but uh, I figured I'd go with you because you're more organic and well, we find the disease. Absolutely. And and that's one of those stress-related things. You normally don't see it, and uh, I, I'm surprised because you're a good gardener. And I, I, But, you know, when we have the kind of summer we've had, everything can be a little stressed. But normally, if you take care of the stress, it'll go away on its own. If you'll give it a few sprayings of the hydrogen peroxide, it'll go away a lot faster it's certainly no reason to, you know, do away with your plants. Uh, uh, when it's time to prune, if you prune your citrus, I'd certainly take out the limbs that are showing the canker before I would take out anything else. But uh, I think that just good old peroxide is probably going to take care of your problem for very little money and totally safe for you. Well, that sounds good. And and, and the other question that I have is uh, I've got some potted chilipatine plants. Yes, sir. And I was wondering if it was all right to put them in the ground now, or should I wait? How much cold weather do you get in the winter? Do you get a lot of hard freezes, or are you protected enough? If you grow much citrus, obviously you don't get a real cold winter. But um, your chili pekins, they'll go down to about 25 degrees without really any damage. And if you can protect them, or if you have a protected spot that still gets plenty of sun... I think you would do fine to plant them out now. If you anticipate a little colder winter, keep them in pots and plant them out in about next March. 
Okay. Well, that'll work. I wish I, I had a crystal it. ball and I could tell you what the weather's going to do, but, uh, you know, I... <laughs> The weathermen obviously don't know, so uh, I'm not even going to make a guess. But my observation over a lot of years of experience is when we have a really hot summer, sometimes we have a few real cold spells in the winter months. So, uh, And in Chile Pekin, if it gets down below about 25, it will suffer. So uh, if you, I, you know, my, my, if it were me, I'd plant them out now, but I'd be prepared to give them, uh, to cover them at least if we do get some un, unusually cool weather. Okay. Well, if you find that crystal ball, let me know. <laughs> you know I will. Get out and have a good weekend. I sure appreciate hearing from you. You too. God bless. <laughs> Thank you, sir, and you as well. All right. Back to gardening. It's going to be Rudy and Chris and, let's see, Rudy, Chris, Kay, and Jason in that order. Good morning, Rudy. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I, I just want to, uh, when you find that crystal ball y'all were talking about, let me know how <laughs> how, how it works to find the right rain rock, uh, rain rock or rain dance in my yeah. area. Because I, I see the, the rain, I can almost touch it east, west, north, or south, and it just won't rain at my place. You sound <laughs> just like me. And uh, if it does rain, it's just that three little drops on your windshield or just that little... Enough to hit you in the face, and you say, wow, was that rain? (laughs) Yes, sir. Anyway, I I heard you talk to the lady before about scorpions, and I don't know if there's a cure for this or not, but being as knowledgeable as you are, maybe you have something. Uh, My question, and you were talking about baking soda and comfrey for for scorpion bites or boss bites, but is there something that works on fire ant bites? Uh, comfrey works extremely well on fire ant bites, uh, and that's probably what I use it for more than anything else. Thankfully, I don't get nailed by the wasps and scorpions very often. It does happen, but I'm sometimes a magnet for fire ants, and uh, you, you I just miss fire ants. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they do some good things. They get rid of ticks. Their fire ants aren't all bad, but they're sure bad if you accidentally. And and right now, oh, when God. it's so dry, you don't know where the mounds are. And sometimes you're just standing there on the edge of the garden. All of a sudden, you look down there over your boots and starting up your leg. But uh, the comfrey, just squeezing a little bit of the juice out of the stem, out of a leaf, rubbing it over the area, it just immediately takes care of the itch and almost always prevents uh, that little blister that you sometimes get. Well, that was going to be my next question, the, the blister, because you, you know how long it lingers. And oh, then, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, do, do you have comfrey at uh, at your place? We normally uh, do. Like I say, I've only been back from uh, my annual vacation oh, one well, day. Yeah, I heard you talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll make you jealous. But uh, oh, uh, we normally, <laughs> yeah, we normally keep comfrey in stock. So I will say yes. But if it's uh, any distance, uh, call before you come. Um, well, I'm way down south. Uh, you know, living goods and there's right. a few places around here. I'm sure the box stores don't carry them. No, I've never seen it at a box store, but uh, how, how far south are you? I know uh, Curry's uh, Nursery at, down there. Uh, highway 16 and 1604. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, you're not too far out. Um, uh, in fact, Fanix is not that far from me, and I'm sure they probably carried it. You know, I'd like to get a few little pots and oh, take yeah. care of them, and, and when I get uh, fire ant bites, just, well, like just cut the stem and, and use the uh, 
the little liquid that'll come out of there. To, yeah, yeah, and even just the moist leaves just rub on. Uh, yeah, call Fanic, 648-1303. I imagine Mark and Mike have it over there, but uh, plant it in the yard. Yeah, plant it in an area yeah. that gets, uh, I have one area in full sun, uh, at the nursery, we have a big plant of it that's growing in uh, actually morning shade and afternoon sun. So uh, it needs some bright light. Half but shade, half sun is a good formula for that. Yeah, absolutely. What if you want to keep it in a container? Uh, just a big pot, like a 10-inch diameter size. Uh, sure. I would protect five it. Five-gallon, three-gallon. Yeah, three to five-gallon. If it yeah. gets below 20 degrees, I would probably bring it inside. But, you know, most of the freezing weather you're likely to get, it's going to do fine in a pot. Yeah, well, that's that's a reason because the fires don't go away just because it freezes. Yeah, they don't go away for <laughs> any reason. <laughs> I know. I do I know? Yes, sir. Well, I certainly appreciate your information. Welcome back and enjoy listening to you. I appreciate it, Rudy. Thank you, sir. You have a good day. You Thank too. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. Next up is going to be Chris. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Good How morning. I'm good. How about you today? I'm just great. Excellent. Ready to get out there and work. Best way to start um, the day. <laughs> I just have a couple of questions. Yes. Um, so my daughter bought a bougainvillea, but it's the peach colored uh-huh. kind. Yeah. And I wanted to plant it in the ground, but all I see around town are the red, mm-hmm. you know, the red ones in the ground. Will the peach one? They'll do just grow? as they'll do just as well as the reds do. I can tell you where oh, okay. there are a couple of them growing over on North New Braunfels, the street that I go up and down between our nursery and Doctor Kirby's all the time. And there's an enormous one growing over there. And um, yeah, the only ones that I would be reluctant to plant in the ground there is an orange one, a new one that's called Flame, and it doesn't seem to like the cold at all. And there's a red that's very similar to it. But, no, that peachy one's probably sundown or something like that. Uh, it's just as hardy as the reds. Now, uh, in a real cold winter, they will freeze back at least to some degree. And if you're planting it in the ground this late in the season, I mean, it's not going to have as long a period of time to get established. So I would be prepared to cover it when we get any real freezing weather, if we get any real freezing weather, but it will do just as well as the red ones will in the ground. Okay. Yeah. Well, I planted it and planted it in a pot because I wasn't sure. So mm-hmm. I can just bring it in over the winter and plant it next. That, spring, you know, that's always the safest thing to do, but just, uh, uh, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've seen people uh, say, well, I'm just going to go out of town for the weekend and there's no forecast or freezing weather. And sure enough, the weathermen changed their tune about, the, you know, as soon as you get outside the city limits. So uh, if you're going to spend any time out of town, I would definitely bring it in or cover it because uh, uh, sometimes these uh, severe spells of weather come with little or no warning. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. My next question is, um, I think you call it scarifying. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, like the pride of Barbados. Yeah. Seeds? Yeah. We can just okay. call it scratching makes, you know, says scratching exactly the same better, thing, yeah. but everybody has to come up with a fancy word, but yes. And okay. what you're doing, you're just, you're not sawing a hole in the side of the seed, but pride of Barbados, Mount Laurel, a lot of these seeds, uh, blue bonnets, have sort of a waxy coating on the seed. That's to protect the seed. So if it has to lie there for five years mm-hmm. before the conditions are right to germinate, it won't dehydrate and become infertile. So uh, what you're doing is just lightly scratching it. You can do it by hand with a fingernail file. 
I've known right. people that, you know, guys that really want to be a little extra macho, they'll take their grinding wheel and go over mm-hmm. that. Uh, the pros uh, use, um, you know what a gym tumbler is, what uh, your yes. your rock yes, guys use. I used to, to have one. Well, <laughs> if you know now anybody that... that use it, I know. <laughs> yeah, if you know anybody that has one, you simply throw your seed in there, add a little bit of powdered carborundum, and uh, that's how they do it, you know, seed by in big bulk. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, scratching it and then soaking it, it will help things germinate more quickly. Now, I have to say that if your seed is really fresh, you probably don't need to scarify it. That's true of blue bonnet seed and many others. But if it has stayed out for a season, if it's gotten real dry, you'll certainly get a faster and a higher percentage of germination if you do scarify it. Okay. And I also, I wanted to try to start some um, mimosa trees. Uh Uh-huh. Are those seeds same way? Yeah, they I mean, would be. They, this, look, they look the same. Yeah, so yeah, they would be the okay, same so way. I have to do the same thing. Right. Are you here in San Antonio, those? Chris? Okay. Yes. You know, yeah, I'm over Leon Valley. Area. Really improve the soil. Lots and lots of compost. I love mimosa, but in just our native soils, they tend to be very short-lived, five to seven years maybe. So you really improve that soil, you'll have one that will probably last you for 20 or 25 years. I love the trees, so do hummingbirds, but uh, they take a little babying. Okay. So lots of compost. Yeah. Around the most of trees. Yep. Okay. All right. That's it. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Have a great Sunday. Thank we'll, you. Thank you. Oh, I love some mellow music. Getting back into gardening. It's going to be Kay and Jason, and Kay's up first. Good morning, Kay. Yes, hi. Good morning. Good morning. I'll try to be quick. I know Jason's waiting also. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, I'll keep it to two questions. One of them is, and I've heard you speak of it before, but I haven't figured it out. How do I get to recognize which of the bougainvilleas are the day neutral and which ones bloom like all summer? Versus only in September, which I have, I have two huge ones planted mm-hmm. at the base of a mesquite in my front yard, and they're about 15 feet high, loads of leaves, big long stems, two, inch and a half thorns, and they're barely putting out flowers. Yeah, They've got all the food and the sun. How do you get this? Well, uh, again, they are obviously... Uh, the the day neutral means bloom all the time. The short oh, okay. day the short day bloomer, which is probably what you have, means that it blooms as the days get longer and the nights get shorter. Um, the best thing to do, of course, is deal with a good nursery that can tell you what they're selling you. Uh, if not, uh, look for the varietal name if it is on there and unfortunately box stores and places don't always put it on there mm-hmm. and then you can always uh google it uh and or you can ask you know somebody that that knows bougainvilleas but unfortunately most are not sold with an identifying name on them so uh is just mm, pretty much either buy from somebody you trust or uh, see if you can do enough research to figure out what they are, which can be difficult because that's the only way you're really going to know if they're day neutral. The other way is just through hard experience. You've had one for several years that never blooms until fall, uh, which pretty an indication it's one of the short day types. Well, I put those in probably 17 years ago, long right. before I had a clue how to even pronounce <laughs> bougainvillea. There you go. So, 
but they have grown. I didn't know I shouldn't put them in the ground. Everybody said they died. Well, they didn't, <laughs> and they're huge. Yeah. But now I realize the difference. Well, so. but, you know, there are plenty of other things that we plant. We plant chrysanthemums, knowing they only bloom in the fall. We plant mm-hmm. marigold. We plant, uh, uh, you know, copper canyon daisies. We plant uh, a lot of different salvias that we know only bloom in the fall and the fall asters. So um, we shouldn't lament the fact that maybe it wasn't the best choice, but it might have been the only choice at the time. So don't beat yourself up over it. Well, they're staying in the ground. They are attractive. I have to keep cutting them back, which Mm -hmm. takes out the tips where the flowers are, but I have to keep them from reaching into sidewalks and people's face and driveways and stuff. But now that I am much more aware, I would like to know that now that I know that there is another kind. Right. So I will have to ask. There's nothing that says... Oh, I'm no. different from this one. No, it's it's not normally on a tag, but a nurseryman who knows their stuff will be able to tell you which ones they are. So I appreciate it. I will look forward to our next visit, and that gives me exactly two minutes, which is half the time to get Jason in here. Good morning, Jason. Hi, thanks. Um, I was wondering, uh, do you have a recommendation for sugar snap peas? Is it okay to plant those now? Uh, yes, you're fine to plant them now. My favorite is a vining one that's called Oregon Sugar Pod. Uh, that's the one that has been most productive for me and tolerant of cold. And uh, it's normally cold doesn't affect the blooms. It, I mean, uh, the leaves, it just affects the blooms. But uh, Oregon, I think it's Oregon Sugar Pod 2 is the one that I'm growing. But they're all going to be good. Some of them just a little better than others. And also one other quick question, broccoli seed, is it good to plant that now? It, absolutely, but I'll tell you, I plant from little plants. Broccoli seed can be a little hard to germinate, and, uh, you know, some things always should be from seed, like sugar snaps uh, uh, and beets, radish, carrots, turnips, things like that. But broccoli, I like planting it from plants, uh, but you're going to find that uh, there are good plants available in the nurseries now. If you want to start it from seed, I would start it in pots. Get those uh, plants up to where they have two or three true leaves and then transplant them to the garden. Okay, thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning.